Welcome to the latest episode of Season 2 of Football Uncovered. In Season 1, we took you inside Blackburn and Leeds, Portsmouth and Liverpool, FIFA and a lot more. We heard about extraordinary stories of football chaos, cock-ups and outright corruption. This season, we're going inside eight more Premier League clubs, as well as having two special episodes. One about life after the Premier League, and one about the very future of club football at the highest level. I'm your host, Will Brazier, and with me every episode is Sporting Intel's Nick Harris. Nick, how are you? I'm good, thanks. Looking forward to this one. Yes, me too. Um, This season, it's not just me and Nick. We're also joined by a guest each week, usually a fan of the club we're talking about or someone who has followed them very closely and knows all the inside stories. As well as sharing all the usual inside stories from each club, we'll of course be looking at the owners of the club, how they came to be there, where they've taken the club so far, but most importantly, what's next. Today it's Chelsea and I'm delighted to say we're joined by Jake Cohen who is about as blue as they come. Jake, first of all, very good morning. What time is it over there? Um, it's 06 um, in the east coast of the US uh, in Boston where I grew up and where I'm riding out uh, the COVID pandemic. Love that. I think you take the award of the uh, earliest guest appearance, so congratulations. Thank you for that. See this award. Special thanks to Jake for getting up and, and being on at six in the morning. Um, also, we should probably say that Jake's normally lives in London and he went to a conference a year ago for the weekend with a toothbrush and a three days clothes and he hasn't been back since because of the COVID thing. So that's pretty extraordinary. And I'm also really pleased that Jake's on. We've known each other electronically by email, by Twitter and following each other's works for about um, 10, 11 years. And I learned something new the other day speaking to Jake, um, you know, ahead of the podcast that, that I didn't know before that in actual fact, Jake had asked me for permission to use something from Sporting Intelligence on a blog he wrote on a Chelsea website about 10 or 11 years ago, which ultimately in a convoluted route led to his career as a sports lawyer. But maybe, Jake, you could tell us a bit more about that and also about how on earth you became a Chelsea fan in the first place. Definitely. Um, yeah, and Nick, you know, thanks so much for having me. Will, you as well. Nick, um, yeah, I've been following Sporting Intel for years. I was actually a subscriber back in the day when, you know, it was a subscription-only service. I would get the weekly digest um, from Sporting Intel every week in my email, you know, read it, you know, as soon as I got it every week. Um, yeah, I've been following your work since, you know, 2010. So I'm pleased that, you know, a decade later, you know, I've been able to work hard enough, you know, to finally work with you on this podcast. That's certainly a bucket list uh, item ticked off. <laughs> I love that. And I should make, the, you know, emphasise, Jake now is a, a sports lawyer who works in football primarily. He does commercial contracts. He knows people. He works with clubs. He works with players. He's done some really important discriminatory cases. You know, this is somebody who works daily in sports law. He's a real Chelsea insider as well. You know, he's met Mr. Abramovich, which is certainly something that I, I've never sat down for a coffee with Roman Abramovich. <laughs> and you, you've met some of the players. So, you know, Jake is somebody who sort of lives and breathes Chelsea. But first of all, Jake, can you tell us how you came to be a fan and particularly your John Terry story? Yeah, so really lucky how I became a Chelsea fan. Um, didn't really know too much about English football beyond playing the FIFA video game. And when I was a kid, 
my family and I used to spend a good amount of time in Ireland. And every once in a while, we'd have the opportunity to visit London as well. And it just so happened that over Thanksgiving break in 2004, um, you know, we were in Ireland, you know, we spent a weekend down in London. Um, you know, my brother and I had been playing that FIFA video game. And we wanted to see, you know, a real proper English football match. You know, we have the New England Revolution MLS club that we grew up with. Um, but, you know, it, in 2021, it's still pretty different between MLS and the Premier League. And that was, that difference was even more pronounced, you know, back in 2004. So we somehow managed to get tickets to see Charlton Athletic play at the Valley. Charlton at the time, Premier League club. Didn't know anything about them, didn't know anything about Chelsea. Um, assumed they were, you know, the same. Um, turns out they weren't. Um, Chelsea went up one nothing really quick. I think that was a score at the half. And then second half starts. Chelsea went down. Uh, they win a corner. John Terry heads it in. Um, they reset. Maybe two minutes later, Chelsea runs down the pitch again. John Terry scores again. Chelsea ends up winning four nothing. And then I go home to Boston, tell everybody I know that I saw England's best striker and probably the best striker in the world, John Terry, score twice <laughs> inside of five minutes. Um, it took a good month, maybe even a year, before I realized that John Terry, um, not, in fact, England's best striker, um, but, in fact, a center back in of the 700, 800, 900 games he's played professionally. I think I may have been at the one where he scored twice in one half. Um, but, yeah, that's how I became a Chelsea fan. Nick, you've got connections to Chelsea as well, haven't you? Not really. I mean, I did once nearly score a world-class goal at Stamford Bridge. Um, It wasn't in a Premier League game, you'll be shocked to learn. Um, It was a sort of press day for a new football boot that I think Michael Owen was promoting. And so they invited the press to try on the boots and, and have a bit of a kickabout on the turf at Stamford Bridge, they didn't have a boot my size, so I didn't actually get to try the boot on, and I just had to yeah. take the free kick in my work shoes. <laughs> but I curled it, James Ward-Prowse-esque, nice. from about 25 yards over the uh, cardboard wall, right towards the top-hand uh, left corner of the goal. And the goalkeeper, whoever Chelsea's third goalkeeper or whatever uh, at the time, just, just got his fingers to it, but crashed into the post in in saving it. So there was that. Um, other than that, I had a few run-ins with uh, Ken Bates when he was the owner. He was the first person to sue me nice. uh, during my journalistic career. Like people talk about the Carter Rook letters, it's almost a shorthand for for legal letters. Carter Rook being a particularly a notorious firm for you know suing journalists, and and actually Ken's lawyers at the time were Carter Rook. It arose from a court case where basically um, the restrictive practices court were trying to work out whether the Premier League, to simplify it, it was basically trying to work out whether the Premier League would have the rights to sell their, you know, how they would sell their TV rights. And Ken Bates was making the point that basically anybody in Britain could afford satellite television. Well, I'm paraphrasing now. don't want to get sued again. But paraphrasing, (laughs) he was saying you could go to any council estate and see satellite dishes, Satellite TV was available and affordable for everybody and that there was no such thing as somebody who was too poor to have satellite television. Uh-huh. And I wrote a story and I think the headline on the back page of The Independent was Bates dismisses football's poor. So he got a letter from Carter Rook saying this was disgraceful, a massive misrepresentation of what he was saying. But we got a transcript from the court uh, proceedings and, and that is what he said. So uh, he didn't win. And then apart from that, I've done a bit of 
bits of digging over the years around Chelsea's finances um, and Abramovich's, Roman Abramovich's past. But no, no direct connections apart from watching my own team generally get thrashed at Stamford Bridge. I think been for there for a 4-0. You know, Saints snatching defeat from the jaws of victory a number of times. But apart <laughs> from that, no direct connections. Love that. Um, should we get into the highs and lows of the Roman Abramovich era? Because there's obviously a lot to dissect, um, starting all the way back in 2002 with the with the Passover with your good friend Ken Bates. Yeah, so it was the takeover. I mean, we'll come back to sort of the broad sweep of the of the era and how maybe contrary to the stability that a lot of people might expect should underpin success that Roman Abramovich certainly in terms of managerial appointments at least has got the philosophy that he appoints managers and if they win they stay in their jobs but they don't always stay in their jobs if they win and if they if they lose and aren't successful they certainly get sacked and yet you've got 16 major trophies in 18 years that he's been in charge that's five Premier League titles a Champions League two Europa Leagues five FA Cups three League Cups I mean there's consistent silverware consistent success lots of money lots of big players it kind of confounds the argument that you need managerial stability certainly he's done things a different way but let's go back to the the takeover I'm guessing Jake this was obviously before your time as paying close attention to English football the the takeover in 2003 and Will I think you were 12 in 2003 well I was just thinking like looking into it when you were playing like championship manager or FIFA you always could I don't want to pull back behind the curtain but you could cheat (laughs) and uh, allot yourself some big money if you wanted to by selling you know, the White York for £500 million. But this was like the first sort of takeover where you felt this was monopoly in real life, That especially that first season. They were just buying the best players that they could and it was, well, in my lifetime, I'd never seen it. Yeah, I mean, it came out of the blue, no pun intended, that this billionaire oligarch, again, it was the first time a lot of us started to use the word oligarch or know <laughs> what an oligarch was. Um, we'd never heard of, of Abramovich. He bought Chelsea, like, like all the big big takeovers. The first we knew of it was when it was already done. It was a done deal and announced. And he did start spending money in a way that we'd never seen before, that nobody had seen before, certainly in England. Probably one of the most transformative events in English football, showing that foreign billionaires could just arrive, spend a lot of money and start winning trophies. And it was in the wake of Roman Abramovich, really, that the Glazers then took over Manchester United two years later in 2005 and Sheikh Mansour was 2008 and Kroenke later. But this was the first one. And Will's already alluded to the fact that they were spending in English football like nobody had seen before. I mean, I sent you guys a list of just, just uh, uh, some of the highlights and some of the, the seasonal spending. So in the season um, before... Uh, Roman Abramovich took over. So the last season of Ken Bates, 2002-03. Chelsea spent basically nothing, very, very little on players. Philippe Oliveira at half a million pounds was was the most expensive, maybe out of two million pounds spending, if that, in that whole season. The first season of Abramovich, he spent £153 million with Damien Duff, uh, more than £20 million. £150 million the next season with Drogba costing, I think, 24 It might have been a bit more. £82 million the next season, SEN 34 £80 million the next season, Shevchenko, £30 million. That was a big deal because it, it, was, it was almost like the personal buy, wasn't it, that Abramovich wanted Shevchenko. So, and obviously in latter years, it's... The last few years, of, say from 16, 17 onwards, 120 million, 235 million, 188 million, 40 million, 222 million. But back in 2003, for these were transformative sums. And I think most 
most neutrals sort of just looked at it and thought that it was incredible and that there was nothing particularly wrong with it. It was just, it, it was fantasy football. No doubt. My brother would always play with AC Milan and FIFA. So I was very aware of how good Shevchenko was because obviously FIFA and actual football is the exact same thing. It's totally real life. Um, so I was super excited when Shevchenko came to Chelsea and I still have a Shevchenko number seven Ukraine top. I think I'm the only person who probably has that top that is like not of actual like Ukrainian descent. And like, I still wear that. Who were your sort of favorite players then in that, in that era, in the first years of your fandom? John Terry for sure. And then when Michael Essien signed, he became my favorite player ever. And a couple years ago, you know, I was just, you know, walking to the ground um, when I'm in London, living about 20 minute walk away. Um, and, I just happened to casually see Michael Essien also walking to the ground. And like my mind was blown where it's just like, you know, this legend is just walking to the football ground on the same road as me. <laughs> and, you know, I composed myself to try not to fanboy like I knew was ostensibly going to happen. And, you know, I probably said something ridiculous like, hey, Mr. Bison, like you're back at Stanford Bridge. And, and he was, could not have been nicer. Um, we had a little chat and um, yeah, it's wild to go from seeing these players on TV on this like janky Satanta sports feed to actually like seeing them play in person. And then, yeah, having an opportunity you know, to actually meet some of the people that you've seen, you know, play world-class football, you know, hundreds of times. But I mean, you've had a chance to meet some of these. I mean, I think you've met John Terry, Frank Lampard. You've even met Mr. Abramovich, I think. Sure. Uh, Mr. Abramovich and I, you may be surprised to know travel in slightly different circles. Um, so it was, yeah, it, it was fortuitous that, you know, we just happened to have a, a mutual friend and this mutual friend was just kind enough to subject Mr. Bromovich to my presence uh, for a few minutes. Wow. How'd you come to have a mutual friend with Roman Abramovich? Um, I think it's just one of those things. Um, <laughs> while we travel in slightly different circles, our friends and his friends, transcend these uh, respective circles and maybe we'll just leave it at that how was he <laughs> could not have been nicer you know again this is somebody that i can provide no value to um i'm sure he gets accosted by the likes of me all the time um this was you know at Stanford bridge in his box where you know he's with family and his friends and yet you know could not have been nicer spent a few minutes there was no sort of watching me out you know he seemed very engaged um yeah just really nice down-to-earth person and you know I, I guess it's pretty ridiculous to just cast an entire segment of people with a broad stoke but you know you think when these extremely wealthy successful people um are with their family and friends they would not necessarily want to talk to a stranger and i'm sure he didn't but like i did not get that impression at all yeah could not have been nicer and i think um yeah with mr bonovich you know, actions speak louder than words. Doesn't really speak too much in public. I think he gave one interview back in 2003 and hasn't said a single word in public until this week, really. Um, but, you know, through his actions with, you know, these fans like me or, you know, supporting the community, leading, um, you know, massive efforts to combat anti-Semitism and discrimination in all forms, being a leader a business leader in terms of UK COVID response, um, ensuring that every worker was paid in full, um, not taking advantage of other government subsidies, which 
not every Premier League club owner can say, um, providing free meals and housing through his hotels at NHS and all of the other good works that he doesn't shout about, but the people on the ground um, are very fortunate to have his assistance. Um, yeah, I, I just think that sort of encapsulates you, Mr. Bromwich, as a person. Just quiet, reserved, act and speak louder than words. And I think that's a really important perspective to have because, like you said, apart from when he first came to buy the club, um, he was at the time the governor of the Chukotka region of, of Russia, where he was the governor from 2000 to 2008. He spent uh, billions of dollars of his own money at that time improving schools and housing in the region. He was certainly um, a benefactor, and people saw him as a benefactor and a good man. Um, back to the football and his stewardship of, of the club, from Ranieri to um, Tommy Tuchel, as I heard someone refer to him the other day. I don't know if Tommy is is his chosen uh, name. Um, but from Ranieri to Tommy Tuchel, Mr Abramovich has had 15 permanent manager spells, some of them the same people twice, including Mourinho and obviously Gus Hiddink but has won 16 major trophies in that time. Now, as I said, I was chatting to Jake about this the other day, and we, I was throwing in sort of the idea that stability isn't Roman Abramovich's watchword. He's never tried or pretender to engender managerial stability. He gets big-name managers, lets them spend money, expects success and sacks them if it doesn't come, and sometimes he sacks them when it does. It works for him. It's chaotic. It's unstable. That was sort of my view. Jake, you pulled me up on this and, and explained why actually there's a lot of stability at Stamford Bridge in the Abramovich area. Tell, tell us why. For sure. I mean, you know, I think you brought up a great point that is loads of managerial turnover. And despite that, Chelsea has continued to achieve pretty consistent success, you know, over the past 16, 17 years. Um, and I think a lot of that has to do with the fact that there is stability in terms of key decision makers. So, for example, uh, Bruno Granitskaya um, has been working for Mr. Abramovich, I think since she graduated uni. Um, Bruce Buck has been with Mr. Abramovich since day one. Um, he's actually a season ticket holder, I think dating back to the 90s. And as an American lawyer who came over to the UK for work and just somehow ended up, you know, being the chairman of Chelsea Football Club, you know, Bruce is someone I've always looked up to personally. Um, Eugene Tannenbaum, I think he and Mr. Bromwich have known each other since they were kids. Um, and, you know, he's been one of Chelsea's few board members um, throughout Mr. Bromwich's tenure at Chelsea. Um, Neil Bath has been at Chelsea since before Mr. Bromwich. And he's, you know, since became the head of the academy. And along with Michael Amanello, who was there for about a decade, should be given a lot of credit for, you know, pretty revolutionary approach to youth development where the approach to youth development is not just about providing a pathway to the first team it's looked as a sort of investment stream as a way to provide a return on investment whether that be money coming in um from transfer fees or a cost-effective addition to the first team um so the loan system for example has been extremely profitable and i think you know the credit needs to be given to Michael Manella and Neil Bath for overseeing that. And, you know, Neil Bath is still at Chelsea and, you know, Michael was there for about a decade. So I think in terms of some of the key decision makers, there has been quite a bit of consistency, obviously, just not the managerial position. 
Listen, let's go on to another aspect of the Chelsea success story, which again, controversial, but equally, as you've already said, it's, it's a, it was a business decision, it's generated revenue, it's not without its, its critics. And I'm talking about Chelsea's so-called farm system. This is recruiting huge amounts, dozens and dozens of young players in their late teens and early 20s who are really good prospects from around the world, loaning them out um, more often than not to different partner clubs in different places around Europe and different places in England and then relatively rarely they'll get into the first team and they'll, and they'll make the break but more often than not they will um, you know be sold on quite often for big profits now I don't know exactly because it's not declared the actual precise amounts that this costs Chelsea I'm not totally inside for example whether when all these players and it could be sometimes it's up to 25, 30 in particular seasons. I think it's been up to at one time who were professional footballers in their early 20s who are not part of the first team squad. I don't know the economics and how it works. I assume that the clubs that they're on loan to are paying most, if not all, of their wages and therefore the development costs might not be in and of themselves that much. And then every time you sell one of these guys for 10 million or 20 million, like Nathan Akey was was 20 million, I think I think they got for him. And there's been lots and lots of them. You know, how profitable it is. But two questions for you, Jake. One is, do you have any insight into quite how how much of a you know a business um, decision that was to try and generate revenue and how how successful that is from a business point of view? And two, when you look at some of the players who they had and got away, and I'm talking about you know the probably three most obvious examples are Mo Salah, Lukaku, and Kevin De Bruyne, all players who went through Chelsea system who are currently three of the best footballers in the world that Chelsea let go. That sort of seems a little bit um, like like a misstep. Although if you go back and look at what happened to each of those players at the time, they simply weren't better than or as good as players in the squad. So you can explain that. But yeah, could you sort of address those two things or give me your insight? Sure. So I think it's important to know sort of how football finances are calculated, right? So, you know, if you sign Timo Warner for... Just speculating 50 million pounds and you give them wages of again just speculating just round numbers uh 100,000 pounds a week um for five years so that 50 million pounds over five years that expenditure is not going to be recorded as 50 million pounds in this financial year it'll be amortized which is just an accounting term um over the lifetime of the player's contract so instead of that 50 million pound expenditure in one year that's spread as a 10 million pound expenditure in each of the next five years, you add his wages onto that, say 5.2 million a year, that's a 15.2 million pound expenditure in each of the next five years, rather than 55.2 now and 5.2 in the next four. And when you have young players that, you know, you've brought in for one, three, seven, 10 million pounds, that expenditure obviously spread out over the players' deal. Um, if the wages are being covered, as they are in many cases, or if there's a loan fee involved, then that player for the purposes of football accounting and Kusi for Chelsea when financial fair play was actually a thing to be feared instead of just UEFA talk. Um, you know, it was a very real way of basically getting free or super low cost players into the system. And then obviously when they either graduate to the first team, that's a super cost effective way of acquiring talent. Um, you know, where otherwise for a player like Chelsea, even to get a rotation player, you're looking at, you know, 20 million pounds plus wages. Um, and if you sell them on, obviously the way 
profits are recorded or income is recorded, all of that is realized in one year. So if you have a young player, 30 grand a week, that's 1.5 million pounds a year, roughly. And let's say he costs 3 million pounds, signs a five-year deal. That's 600 pounds in amortized transfer fee plus 1.5 in wages. That's 2 million pounds a year. If you sell that player on for 10 million pounds, like once you add on all of the loan fees um, and wages subsidies, you've either gotten a free look at a player. So you've gotten a free lottery ticket or you've actually recorded a profit. So this sort of low risk, high reward approach to youth development has been a fantastic success. Um, we see Manchester City try to replicate that as have a number of other clubs just by looking Arsenal as well, just United, just by looking at the number of players that are increasingly going on loan. And yeah, I totally agree. It would have been great to still have Mary Slock, Kevin De Bruyne, Romelu Lukaku <laughs> in the squad today. Um, really big fans of all of them personally. Um, but to say that that was a failure, that's like saying, you know, buying Amazon stock 10 years ago and selling five years ago was a failure. No, I mean, you five extra investment, you just didn't hundred extra investment. So all of those deals, De Bruyne, Lukaku, Salah, brought money into Chelsea that they were able to then reallocate to other players. So maybe they wouldn't have been able to find the likes of Angolo Conte, for example, if they didn't have that money. And it's worth noting that on those players particularly, I, I did a study three years ago looking at the 20 farm players that Chelsea, well, I'm calling them farm players, but 20 of these type of players who were basically signed, very rarely played for Chelsea and were sold years later for a profit. Three years ago in 2018, I looked at a study of the 20 farm players that they'd sold uh, recently and these included Kevin De Bruyne so they made an 11 million pound profit on Kevin De Bruyne after he played three times for them they made a 6 million pound profit on Mo Salah after he'd only paid 13 times for them and they made 18 million pounds profit on Lukaku after he'd only played 10 times for them amongst the group of players in that cohort they looked at Patrick Bamford four and a half million pounds profit Ryan Bertrand 9.9 million pounds profit uh, Nathaniel Chalabar five million pounds profit Nathan Aki 20 million pounds profit Bertrand Traore 8.8 million pounds profit so those 20 players between them who'd collectively been at Chelsea for something like 60 player years had made a total of 126 appearances combined in 60 years and had made um, £107.6 million in profit for Chelsea during that period of time. It was an average of 6.3 appearances per player in that group and an average profit of £5.4 million per player. I guess critics outside of, of Chelsea and particularly now outside the clubs that replica tried to copy Chelsea to do the same thing would say well this is the big clubs um, stockpiling all the best talent in an increasingly unfair and unbalanced football environment but if you're a fan of the clubs it's working for Chelsea it's working for them it's allowed it obviously did good things for Chelsea yeah for sure I completely agree I think you left out the best example of this which was uh, Poppy Digiboli who I think like one one total minute for okay. Chelsea and you know he was sold for, for five million pounds later like people look at that transfer like fans look at that transfer and I think this is one of the many unfounded criticisms of Michael Aminella who is one of the best executives that football has ever had um, people will look at that and be like oh that was a bad deal like why would Chelsea ever sign him well, no, it was a fantastic deal because it yielded five plus million pounds in profit, which then not only gave Chelsea, again, a free look at a player. So there's no cost to the club, but that money can also be reinvested um, 
on other players that can be brought in, um, you know, that will play for a team and I think contribute uh, to winning trophies. So let's go on to the last two sort of things we need to cover. So if we quickly whip through the Abramovich areas, we all know the managers. We had Ranieri, then we had Mourinho, then we had Avram Grant, Scolari, Hiddink. I mean, this is just an A to Z of the best coaches in world football over the last 20 years. Ancelotti... Vias Boas, Di Matteo, Rafa. I mean, who can remember the Rafa uh, stint winning the Europa League for a fan base who generally didn't treat him particularly well? Mourinho again, Hiddink again, Conte, Sarri, Lampard, and now we've got Tommy Tuchel. So uh, you've got all those trophies, uh, all that success, all that money. Um, What do you think Roman Abramovich wants now? And what do you think he sees as the point of modern Chelsea? What do you think or what do you know from knowing people at the club where they want to be and what what is the point of sort of Chelsea now? What are their aims? Yeah, I think it's largely exactly what he said when he gave that one interview back in 2003. I'm paraphrasing, but he basically said, I'm not in this to make money. There's much easier, safer ways of making money. I'm in this to win trophies and have a good time. And Chelsea is a brilliant example, probably one of one, certainly in English football, maybe in world football. Chelsea has not run as a for-profit company or for-profit club. They're run solely and exclusively as a four-trophies club. And over the past 17 years, we've seen Chelsea sort of evolve from strictly four trophies to four good. So the amount of successful social charitable works that Mitchell Brownwitz has done by leveraging Chelsea, which, you know, there's really three things on the planet that transcend linguistic, cultural, ethnic, geographic, religious borders. That's sex, that's math, and that's football. So right now, there's people arguing who is better, Messi or Ronaldo, in 200 different countries speaking 400 different languages. And by Mr. Bromwich recognizing that and leveraging Chelsea to promote all of his efforts combating discrimination and anti-Semitism in all forms, providing untold amounts of money and resources for refugee children. Um, he's been able to pivot Chelsea into solely a four trophies club into a four good club as well. And I think it's important to note that this four trophies approach is not just applied to the men's senior team. He's invested tons of money relative to other clubs and women's football. And that success has been borne out massively under Emma Hayes, Chelsea's won just about everything there is to win except for the Champions League. I fully expect them to continue on that path. Uh, they've already won a trophy this season. And to hear Mr. Bombitz say he gave an interview last week, he sees this investment in women's football, not just as a thing that you should be doing on principle. There is that. But, you know, he said, you know, this is going to be a massive return on investment um, and one that has already paid off for Chelsea in the form of the trophies. And in fact, the women's club is already profitable two years ago. They now, similar to the men, go and sign the very best players all over the world. And in fact, their bench um, would probably be a Champions League club at this point. Um, Mr. Brown does recognize the massive return on investment that women's football will provide. And he's laid the groundwork for that. Um, alongside Emma Hayes um, for the past five or six years now. That's a really, really interesting point. A not-for-profit, a four-trophies club. I've not heard that phrase before, but that's absolutely right, isn't it? Without FFP, presumably, he would have carried on spending what he needed to spend to be a four-trophies club. And now, as you say, he can use the uh, leverage Chelsea as a global football brand to do whatever else he wants to do with it. What about um, the last thing I I wanted to touch upon was... um, 
the notion of Roman Abramovich as the ultimate disruptor in English football, back to where we started, him buying the club in 2003 was just an astonishing thing. It was a transformative moment in English and European football um, and it led to similar um, billionaire overseas owners coming in and doing the same, perhaps having seen what he did and, and fancying a bit of that as well. What do we see as, as Chelsea's future? I mean, can we just assume that they are and will be part of this elite group of super clubs that they currently are part of, along with, um, obviously, Manchester, the two Manchester clubs, Liverpool, arguably Arsenal, maybe Tottenham, who knows where, where they're going, the Spanish giants, uh, Bayern Munich, PSG, Juventus. And do you, as a Chelsea fan, feel happy that your club is part of a group that is increasingly pulling away from everybody else and looks increasingly like leaving the rest of football behind? Or do you think that ultimately their most important ambition will still be to be very much part of the Premier League and if they can also be part of the other stuff, so much the better? Um, as a fan, yeah, I'm only concerned about Chelsea winning trophies and the club continuing to be used as a vehicle for positive social change. I don't want Chelsea to continue to pull away with the Manchester club, the Spanish Giants, Liverpool, PSG. I want them to break away from them as well and just be unequivocally at the top of the heap, which, you know, Chelsea is not at this point. But, I mean, as they continue to work um, and continue to improve upon this model that has worked you know, for the past 17 years, um, yeah, hopefully that will happen. Um, and it'll be a fun journey, nevertheless. I love that. I think it's just given a new insight sort of on Roman Abramovich, hasn't it? And definitely that sort of four trophies approach that, sort of never really considered before obviously you see him as this like calculated businessman but really he just wants trophies in that cabinet and I think that's highlighted by your article Nick when he was with Eddie Newton and just speaking about how much like passion and emotion he had for winning the Champions League and then even sort of this season when I think for a lot of chairmen it would have been easier to keep Frank Lampard just because of the PR around him obviously he's the golden boy and it, it, even though the poor results were there not many people were calling for his head but he saw a clear opportunity to get back in the, the Champions League hunt, continue in the domestic cups. But most importantly, that Champions League, he knew he wasn't going to win it with Frank Lampard and no emotion there, pulled the tide and Tommy Tuchel came in and maybe the Champions League's on the horizon. Yeah, and that's why I wanted Jake on this podcast for his different perspectives on it. Obviously, he's a very knowledgeable fan. He's close to the club and that's why I'm so pleased that Jake's been with us this morning because I think it it's worth all of us having our preconceptions tested and challenged about the way that, that we see things and we see football. And I think that's why um, the perspectives on on the way that Roman Bramovich has owned Chelsea and done business, I think um, that's I'm really pleased that Jake's been able to come on today and share all that insight with us. Love that, Jake. And uh, just glad that we could, you know, tick off another bucket list moment for you this morning. <laughs> it may sound like I'm kidding, but I'm not. Like, I'm not giving Nick air. This is like a real thing. Like, I've been, yeah, I've been reading Nick for over a decade now, um, I've read, you know, hundreds of thousands of words, hundreds of articles. And yeah, he was one of the first people I reached out to when I was writing that Chelsea blog. He cannot have been kinder. And that, this is like a real thing for me. Like, I, I don't really have too many of these like buckleless moments left, like as a football fan or as a professional working in football. I've, I've been very, very lucky to have picked off most of those. I'm so pleased that uh, I could finally work with Nick on something. 
you know, having been a fan of his uh, for over a decade. Can I just add, look, Jake is a sports lawyer. He works at the top end of the football business in sport. Jake is on Twitter at Jake F. Cohen. That's Jake F. C-O-H-E-N. Do follow him. He does lots of lots of interesting sports law work, lots of advocacy for good causes. He's heavily involved with law in sport. He's a good follow um, and obviously pretty humble by what he said about wanting to be on the podcast. But also he does, I think, you know, I'm envious of some of the really interesting and fascinating inside tracks he must have that he isn't probably able to talk about on a podcast because <laughs> he's a lawyer. But he does really interesting work. So do follow Jake on, on Twitter as well. Love that, Jack. I can tell you're not taking the mickey as well because not many people would get up at 5am to come on this podcast. So thank you very much again. <laughs> yeah, of course. Thank you, guys. There we go. Another football uncovered in the books. Massive thanks to Jake. Some great insight on Chelsea there. And if you want to hear more, make sure you subscribe to Football Uncovered. Tell your friends and hit that download button.